Heavenly Father, we want to learn, Father, tonight about David, about his life, of course, Father, about his work, and including that, Father, his mistakes, his uh, challenges. We want to know how you dealt with him, and we want to understand, Father, what that means for us. And Father, I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of these things as we go into your word, that you would help us see clearly, hear clearly, and not just in what we learn about David, but see clearly in our own lives what you're asking us to do. Let us hear from you specifically as well. And Father, I pray that you would uh, give us courage, give us um, direction in what to do differently. It's always easy to see the path, Father. It's never as easy to walk it. But I ask, Father, you'd show us not only where to go, but how to make the the first step, if it's something that we haven't done. And I pray that you'll help us through that as well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Chapters 18 we pick up tonight, but we'll be starting at first at the very end of 17. We have a little unfinished business there for the end of chapter 17. All right, let's reset ourselves back in the story. The fight between David and Absalom for the throne of Israel has reached a critical moment. David has retreated, as you remember, to a town in the north called Mahanaim, which is on the east side of the Jordan along the banks of a river called the Jabbok, one of the three tributaries that feed the Jordan River. We heard that last week in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 24. That was the last verse we uh, read last week. It says, Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Ironically, this town, Mahanaim, was Ishbosheth's capital when he was challenging David for the throne at the beginning of this book. And it perhaps is the reason why David chose this place because he would have perhaps expected that Saul's family might have been kind to him because he had ended up being kind to Mephibosheth, the only remaining relative of Saul. And so now David has gone up there to retreat from his own son, kind of an ironic outcome here. His own son's trying to take the throne from him, so he's gone back to where his last challenger lived. And in a way, it's kind of sad for David to have ended up here because he's retreated to get to Manahim. You see, he's, gone, he's had to go across the Jordan River from where he was in Jerusalem. And technically, this part of the land that he's in now is part of Israel as far as God had given it to Abraham and his descendants. It includes this east side of the Jordan River, but historically, Jews stayed on the west side of the river. And therefore, the view in David's day, and in fact, it's still the case today, was that when you crossed the Jordan going east, you were leaving Israel. Meanwhile, after Absalom took up residence in the palace in Jerusalem, then he was advised, if you remember, by Hushai, David's plant in the court of Absalom, that he should go and recruit an army and engage in a mighty battle against David. And that was Hushai's way of helping David because he knew that David was by far the better warrior. So if David's forces were to meet Absalom's forces in an open field contest, David would be highly favored in that case. But for the same reason, the other counselor that Absalom had had asked for something different. He had said, no, you should strike now with a smaller force while David is on his heels. And Absalom falls for Hushai's deception, decides to raise the great army, lead it himself. All of this gives David time to prepare. And now, after that time, Absalom's ready to attack. So he leaves Jerusalem. He heads up the Transjordan and meets David in Gilead. And now, because of Hushai's counsel, David has the advantage in this 
coming contest. And as we come now to the end of chapter 17, we're going to hear about some of the preparations uh, for this coming battle. We go to verse 25. We read there, it says, Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now, when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzai, the Gideite from Rosjalim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So being new in his position as king, going back to the beginning of that passage, you have Absalom choosing a man who has family ties with David's commander, Joab, to lead Absalom's army. So he picks a guy named Amasa. Amasa was the son of Ethra. Now, according to 1 Chronicles 2.17, this man was the son of an Ishmaelite, not an Israelite, as it says here. This is another copyist error. He's not an Israelite. He's an Ishmaelite. Ishmaelites descend from Ishmael, which means they are not Jews. So Amasa's mother was Abigail, a cousin of Joab, but This man is not Jewish. He's coming from a non-Jewish family. Why was he appointed? Well, it seems as though Absalom has appointed him purely because of his connection to Joab's family, a little distant though it may be, because he wants to gain legitimacy. It's, It's what you do when you're a poser. When you're a pretender for the throne, you mimic what people who have that position have done in the past. So if David has Joab, I'll have Amasa because they're related. They seem to have qualifications on that basis. So he appoints a commander with ties to David's commander, reinforcing the idea that he's the legitimate replacement king. But in appointing a non-Jew, he just shows his ignorance. And for that matter, he displays his lack of appreciation for a relationship with the God of Israel. He's not a man who's concerned about serving the God of the Jews. He's, he's not a, a man of faith, we would say today. So with Amasa, Absalom camps his forces now in Gilead. That's the name for the general region around this part of the Jordan, east of the Jordan. It includes Mahanaim. So we don't know exactly where he camped. He just camped somewhere, probably in the plain. Maybe he went up on the hills near the Jabbok. Either way, he's ready for a fight. Now David's forces are led by Joab, of course, and are somewhere stationed around Mahanaim. And around there he has this group of assorted supporters and allies who are standing with him. Remember, a lot of the men he took with him are Gentile men, hired mercenaries, and he has other friends along the way he's picked up, a man named Shobi, the brother of the current king of Ammon. Remember, Ammon was one of the historical enemies of Israel, but David conquered Shobi's father when he was king and made Ammon a vassal of Israel. So now uh, Shobi's brother is in the position of king over Ammon, but he just serves David. And the fact that you see Shobi showing up to support David just demonstrates that Israel's own enemies still are aligned with David. They see David as the king. Also present with David are a couple of men who knew David's character and supported him in this time of need. One was Machir, who was 
the man previously we heard about him, he was the one hiding and protecting Mephibosheth before David called for Mephibosheth to come and sit at his table. And I think David's faithfulness to Mephibosheth uh, must have impressed Machir, and now he's looking at David as somebody he wants to support. And then there's Barzillai. And Barzillai is a wealthy man from northern Gilead. He comes with this tremendous provision for David and his forces. I mean, just looking at it, we're like, you know, I'd like to be in that army. That actually looks like a pretty nice meal. Um, you don't know how he knew David at this point. There's no indication of how they came to know each other. But because of his kindness here, he is invited to sit at the king's table and partake at David's table at any time. He gives him a place in, the, in that way. He tells Solomon to do the same. So you know, this is a long-lasting relationship after this moment. Both of these guys, Mahir and Shobi, they demonstrate to David that God was moving in the background to help David in the midst of his circumstances. It's an important moment. Don't take this little piece here for granted. You know, from a human perspective, if you were to comment, if you were doing color commentary on David's life right now, you would think that David would not only be the one disadvantaged under these circumstances, but you might question, where is God in all of what's happening to David right now? But you have to remember, God is the great equalizer. Whoever has God's approval has everything. And since David is in God's grace, David is God's anointed, Absalom literally has no chance here, none whatsoever. God delights to show himself in circumstances like this, but he does it in a very particular way. From a human perspective, you and I might look at this and say, well, it seems awful strange to me that David is God's anointed, and yet God has allowed David to be run out of town and to be put into this position where his throne is at risk and his own son is about to take charge and he's being humiliated in all of this, that doesn't feel like God is doing what he should for David. But as the big details in any given story might suggest that God has forgotten us, it will be the little details in the midst of the story that God uses to remind you that he's still there. God allows the big issues, as I'm calling them, to come into someone's life because it's through those big trials that he teaches us and he corrects us and he trains us up in righteousness. If you did not have those trials in your life, you would be far less sanctified. So he brings trial because it's an incredible tool, an incredible motivator for us to change the bad habits and tendencies of our life and to align ourselves more with God. When you are in a foxhole, you pray more than when you aren't. It's the basic rule of life. So he has to put us through bad circumstances for our own good. But when they come, he wants to reassure us that things have not come to crush us, that he has not forgotten us, that he is not against us. So how does he do that while still bringing trial for our benefit? He'll give you little moments, little moments like what David's getting right here, that show you God is on your side even in the midst of your trial. Don't give up. And if you're looking for those encouraging signs when they come, you can begin to make sense of why things are the way they are without going to the extreme of assuming God is against you. You know, David sits there in the middle of Mahanaim, outside the land, contemplating a war with his own son, a ragtag bunch of different people supporting him. He's not necessarily without uh, advantage in terms of military power, but he's still in a very bad situation. And then here comes a guy that he doesn't even know, potentially, with carts and carts of rich produce for his whole uh, team, 
And you, know, you don't have to be a genius to look at that and say, okay, I guess God is on my side. I guess he's here to support me. There's a reason we're going through this. I would imagine if we had a conversation in here that lasted all night, everyone in here would have a story of some kind about moments in their life where trial hit, they had their doubts and worries and fears, but there were those moments where you said, I knew God hadn't forgotten me. This little thing happened. This little thing showed up. God does that so that you'll have the right attitude in the trial. But don't ever ask yourself, well, why doesn't he just take the trial away? Well, you're missing the whole point of trial if you say that. You're forgetting what the value of trial is. And, you know, like we always think, right, we, we think what we want for ourselves will be the best, and yet, in hindsight, that's never true, right? If we always got what we wanted, how bad would we be? And when you don't give God the chance to work through a trial because you assume trials are in and of themselves always a bad thing, well, you're probably doomed to repeat it because they'll have to go through it again to get the lesson if you don't get it the first time. So David is God's anointed king. Absalom is not and never will be. So the outcome of this battle has never been in doubt. David was the one cursed by Shimei as he left Jerusalem, but it will be Absalom that pays the penalty of the curse. That is the classic way in which God mocks the hubris of mankind. Proverbs puts it so succinctly. Proverbs 16.9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So the Lord is directing everyone's steps in this story in order to ensure an outcome that he intended, and at the same time bringing David through a trial that will train him up in some leadership deficits that have contributed to this very set of circumstances. But as I said, the trial is not intended to crush David. His place as king is secure, The Lord put him there, he's gonna serve there. And in fact, in the next chapter, you're gonna see that he continues to see the success that God intended. In fact, you'll notice in the next section, which we start now in chapter 18, uh, at several moments along the path, the narrator will refer to David as king. He never says that about Absalom. So it's clear from the narrator's point of view who's gonna win this battle. All right, this chapter opens by showing David's battle strategy. Let's go there, chapter 18, verse one. Now David numbered the people who were with him and set them over commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David set the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, you should not go out, for if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittiah saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. So David's uh, military strategy, it's, it's sensible, it's prudent, sound. It begins by sharing command of his forces among three trusted, competent men. Uh, and then after he does that, David proposes he'll go out and lead in the fight. And then you notice the people object, and they basically say, you're too valuable to be put out in harm's way in the battle. You know, David's an older man right now. Uh, his value as a military warrior on the, on the battlefield 
not what it used to be. You know, when he was younger, David was an asset on the battlefield. He was, he was a good fighter. He, he had good instincts. He had strength. He had skill. Now, he's more valuable in the rear ranks, not just because he's more knowledgeable, but also because his fighting ability makes him more of a liability at this point. And so David wisely takes that counsel. He agrees with their concerns. He says, fine, I'll stay in the city. But you notice it ends there with those explicit instructions concerning Absalom. In, in so many words, he says, don't harm my son. He's to be treated gently. That's just a subtle way of saying don't kill him. And he makes this explicitly clear. In fact, it's, it says there at the end, all the people heard him say this too, so nobody would have missed this. The question, though, is whether David's choice to show his son this excess of mercy was the right thing to do or not. I mean, what would normally be the penalty for someone who did what Absalom did? Wouldn't anyone else in his place be put to death for trying to take the king's throne, much less the king's life? And in fact, isn't David's reluctance to hold his son accountable, isn't that the very reason this situation has come about in the first place? Remember, mercy and kindness are virtues, unless they become excuses for overlooking disobedience and rebellion. You know, justice, absent mercy and kindness, will harden hearts. But kindness and mercy, absent justice, becomes license to sin. And that's the situation that David has created here with his son. And so David's instructions tell us that as we go into this battle, he is thinking more like a father unwilling to discipline his children than he is like a king about to go to war. So David's careful battle plan goes into action, and we get the expected result. In fact, uh, it's almost anticlimactic in the narrative. Verse 6. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. All right, so if you're confused on some of the terminology here, the people refer to David's forces. Israel refers to the army that Absalom raised from all the tribes, okay? So Israel loses, that is Absalom loses. It takes place in this forest, we're told, forest of Ephraim. The location of that is not precisely known. How obviously somewhere in, in Gilead, it's called a forest, and specifically of Ephraim, because historically Ephraimites settled there from all the way back in the time of Judges. Judges chapter 12 actually refers to uh, Ephraimites in this area. So it just came to be called the forest of Ephraim because of those people who had moved there. And as the battle ensues, it's just a bloodshed for uh, Absalom's forces, as expected. I mean, they're not well-trained, they're not well-led, they don't have experience like David and his forces do. I mean, it was a foregone conclusion. And as a result, 20,000 men leave, lose their lives on the battlefield. That is such an unnecessary cost of the, for the nation because of Absalom's insolence. And then in verse 8, that little curious statement, it says, more of Absalom's men died in the forest as they were trying to run from the fight after the slaughter than those who actually died in the fight. Now, the forests of Gilead are not like, I don't picture the scenic forests of Sherwood Forest or something, okay? These are not a bunch of tall, you know, stately trees with nice wide open spaces between them. This is a desert 
forest. And uh, W.M. Thompson wrote a, a comment about what this forest is like, what it's like in this area. He wrote a book on the, the land of the Bible, and he says, rocks are piled in horrid confusion, covered with prickly oak and other thorny coppice, which confound the unhappy traveler who gets entangled among them. Nothing is more impractical than these stony, thorny forests, and I can readily believe that such a wood would have devoured more of a routed army than the sword of the victors. Just in the chaos of movement through this kind of a obstruction, people are falling over rocks and dying in that respect, or just laying, you know, being caught in the, in the thicket, somebody comes along and puts a sword through them. So Absalom, Absalom's army has been routed, and many of the men killed, and then on the exit, they've all just seen worse. So again, I ask you, what should the punishment be for a man who instigates such unnecessary bloodshed? I mean, under any other circumstances, the commander of such a rebellion would be put to death. And in fact, the law, Deuteronomy 21, 18, requires it. And this is a man who is guilty of insurrection against the king. I mean, it's not a small offense. And we've seen this before, right? David has ignored the law when it came to his family, time and again. So you've got a quandary now. David has issued orders that no one is to kill Absalom. But justice would require that Absalom die. And it is in David's best interest that his son would have this outcome. And that's what God wants for Absalom. So how does God work this out? Well, David's direct order would mean anyone who would kill Absalom would be guilty of their own sin of, in, of rebellion to the king, and yet Absalom needs to die despite David's desires otherwise. So God has his way of working out these problems. Verse nine. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head got caught fast in the oak so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you, Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. And so in his own retreat, he's riding away on a mule. Absalom is riding away on a mule. And he passes under a thick branch of an oak tree, which entangles his flowing hair. It says head here, but it's understood to mean his hair. You remember, we, we heard earlier that Absalom's got movie star good looks, right? And among his key attributes was this great mane of hair that everyone admired. In fact, the, remember we heard about this earlier, the text implied that he was very proud of his hair, even made quite a um, public spectacle of getting a haircut. And all of that pride now is contributing to his fall as God appoints it, because the great mane gets caught entangled so severely that he, has, he gets ripped off his mule as he just continues on. And he's being supported by the hair, his body weight, which would likely have meant he's in a fair amount of pain at this point, very uncomfortable holding his weight up like that. Now, you have to suppose a few things at this point because if he had had a knife on him, which a warrior would commonly have had something like that, uh, you would expect him to just cut his own hair and, and come down from that problem, right? 
So maybe the knife was sheathed on the mule and went away with the mule. Or maybe he just had the vanity to not want to cut his hair and he thought somebody else would come along and save him before he had to resort to that. I don't know. But in either case, a spy in David's camp sees Absalom hanging and goes away to report it. Doesn't, doesn't let Absalom know he was seen. He goes to Joab. And Joab, of course, is incredulous. Why didn't you kill the guy? Perfect opportunity to take out the enemy and finish this whole episode. And for Joab, it made perfect sense. It was the right way to stop a rebellion and return to normal life in Israel. But the soldier remembers what David said, of course, and he says, if I raise my hand against the king's son, especially when the king has told us otherwise, he says, I I know what that means for me. You know, people remember what David did to the messenger who came and said, "I, I killed Saul. Now, Saul was already dead, practically. He was on his way out. The man just helped him finish, and that was still enough that David killed that messenger, and that that probably has not been forgotten. And so the man says correctly, if I had killed Absalom, he he looks at Job and he goes, you wouldn't have even defended me. You would have been aloof. You would have said, not my problem. He says, why are you telling me that I should do it? So there's little doubt that this man was doing what he should by saying no. Clearly, the Lord has captured Absalom in this ridiculous trap, right? It's, it's tailor-made to make a point. His, his prideful appearance and all has trapped him in this you know, humiliating way, readying him for his end. And as a result, the, the, the Lord has brought this innocent man into the picture to witness Absalom's circumstances to, so as to bring about the end, but he didn't let that man become guilty himself. He simply reports it back to Joab. That man's godly character, whoever he was, prevented him from being the one to take action. But in reporting it to Joab, a man who is already due justice for having killed people for the wrong reason in past times, a man who will later receive justice for doing so under Solomon's hand, this man God allows to do the dirty work in this case. It's almost as if God is saying, you're already in trouble. You're already a man who's inclined to this kind of behavior. We'll let you take the role here again and do your worst while holding another man out of blame. And so it falls to Joab. This, this story is a great example uh, of a basic principle of Scripture, which is God is not the author of sin, but he sure knows how to harness it and put it to work. And if you have any concerns with the fact that God does that, may I ask you, what other option does he have? Who does he work with who does not possess sin? All he has is sinners. So he's constantly and always putting sin to work, at least in the sense that he is directing our steps, as Proverbs said earlier, and sometimes that means directing us in what we do well, and other times it means directing us in our sin, but either way, he is putting it to work for good in the, in the way God does things. So look at verse 14. Joab said, I'm not gonna waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand, And he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom, cast him into a deep pit in the forest, erected over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. So Joab reacts to the man's frustration. It's just typical, I think, of ungodly people react to godly people who stand by their principles. 
They just react in frustration. Oh, you can't be worked with. You, won't be, you can't be reasoned with. And so he says, I'm just going to go do it myself. So he, he, he won't waste any more time. He grabs spears. He goes along. He's afraid, obviously, that Absalom's going to get free before he gets back there. So he leaves quickly, finds him while he's hanging, and then spears him. Now, it appears as though that doesn't really kill him, although it probably would have eventually. But it starts the process. And then at that point, the other you know, armor bearers show up and finish the job. His death... Absalom's death is the correct outcome in terms of justice as the law would expect. That is death, maybe not in this way, but death nonetheless. For someone to accomplish it under these circumstances, however, it it meant they had to defy David's order. So Joab, a man who was already guilty of doing that in the past, chose to do it again. And this time, obviously, it will trouble David tremendously, but it is in that experience that the lesson is found for David. His love for his sons and for his family uh, clouded his judgment. It was a, a, mis, uh, a misplaced kind of love. Love at the expense of the nation. Love at the expense of his duty as king. Love at the expense of justice. And in clouding his judgment, it led him to make poor decisions and the deaths of his three sons, Absalom now being the third, were the consequences of those decisions. Yes, Joab killed one and uh, you know, uh, Absalom killed another. And Okay, so these people had actions, but they're a result of something that started earlier. And David is the ultimate cause. So with Absalom dead, Joab calls off the rest of the attack. I mean, there's no point anymore in pursuing the, tr- the, the troops of Israel. They're, their king is gone. Their supposed king is gone, so they're not going to keep fighting for anyone. Uh, yet he wants to make sure Absalom is not treated as a martyr or as a hero, so they dispose of his body in a hidden grave somewhere in the forest, burying him under a high pile of stones, which is kind of ironic because the penalty for what Absalom did would be stoning under the law. And with the battle over and Absalom gone, the people fleeing, the war ends. And as a footnote to the story in verse 18, it says, Absalom had this monument back in King's Valley. Now, I'm going to give you some pictures. I'll explain more of what you're looking at here in a minute. But um, this is the monument that today is called Absalom's Monument. It's in the King's Valley. King's Valley is the Kidron Valley. Those, that hill you see behind there, if you don't recognize it, that's the Mount of Olives. So it sits in the Kidron Valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. This is called Absalom's Uh, This is looking at it from the opposite perspective. So the Temple Mount is on the right. That's the wall of the the old city of Jerusalem in the corner there. And on the left is the hill up to the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane uh, would be directly to your left if you were standing there. Uh, That monument you see there, though, is not the original. This is first century. It's a Roman tomb. Probably a wealthy man built this tomb it's likely or potentially in the same location as where uh, Absalom's tomb originally stood. So that is not necessarily what it looked like, but it's in that same position. Uh, For anyone who's interested in going to Israel with me someday, we go right past that. This is our tour group standing at the base of it. You see how big it is. Uh, So uh, for what it's worth, a little advertisement for the Israel tour. All right, moving on. Why is this remark here? Why are they talking about this monument? Well, it shows you that Absalom had apparently given some thought to the potential that he would die in battle. He didn't have any kids, 
So he, his thinking was, you know, if I go into this battle and I die, if I, and I don't mean this battle specifically, I mean when his thoughts turned to challenging his father, and he recognized that when he challenged his father, that could be the end of him. He starts thinking about his posterity, thinks about his legacy, and he says, I don't got no kids, I'll be forgotten. Let me put a monument up, call it after me, at least somebody will remember that I was around and that I did something. All right, it's an act of hubris, it's an act of self-importance, yes, and in the end it becomes a monument to his folly. But the point of it here is that not even Absalom himself expected his father to spare his life. Nobody expects that if you rebel against the king, it's okay. You're going to get welcomed back into the family. And yet, David's orders look all the more foolish when you read this footnote and you realize not even the man himself was expecting that kind of response. It's, it just makes no sense. Only to a father who loves his son, absent all of these other circumstances, maybe to that person it makes sense. I wouldn't want to hurt my own son. That, you're not thinking like a king who's got a nation under his responsibility and one guy potentially could have ruined it all, never mind the fact that he just led 20,000 people to their death. I mean, it's, it's unconscionable. Absalom is the third son to die, indirectly at least, because of David's multiple wives and the infighting between families and his subsequent unwillingness to discipline his children when these issues came up. Joab, for his part, he's a man prone to acting against authority and against David, but he does it with David's best interests at heart. That's one thing about Joab. He's not a man who's seeking to undermine David. He's seeking to help David for the most part. And his ruthlessness is in part why he is so successful in his role as a commander of David's army. God used Joab to further God's plan for David, at least at times, not because God endorses Joab's methods or his motives, but rather because his methods, being his own, were useful to God at times when David wasn't willing to do what he needed to do. And Joab's sinful instincts uh, were used here to defeat an even more sinful Absalom who was trying to undermine God's anointed. And ultimately, look at what God does with Joab. He uses Joab to discipline David. And the time has now come for that lesson to reach its intended target. Verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king the news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, you are not the man to carry the news this day, but you shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, go, tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Now Himaiah, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Amaz ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. It sounds like dad, right? Fine, fine, go ahead. Run in the freeway, I don't care. <laughs> then, so then Amaz, this kid, uh, Ahimaz, he's, he's thinking like most kids would have at that time in history. That is, you, when you're the messenger who brings good news to a king, it's very customary for the king to reward that messenger. And he, you know, he doesn't appreciate the big picture, clearly, because he's thinking that when I tell David that his son has died in the war, etc., it's all good news. And it should have been. He's not actually, you know, the fool in this is not Amahaz. The fool here is David. But 
Joab feels, you know, some care and concern for this man. He realizes this kid doesn't understand things. He wisely wants to spare him of what would happen if he delivers this news. So he clarifies, look, you're not going to get rewarded for this. You don't want to go. I'm going to send a Cushite. Now, Cush is a historical name for Egypt. So he's sending a Gentile that happens to be one of those conscripted mercenaries. And clearly, Joab sees that guy as expendable, or potentially so. He doesn't know what David's going to do, but he just says, okay, you go. And he sends this guy to give David the, uh, the answer. Now, in verse 22, you see, obviously, the kid keeps pushing. And so eventually, uh, Joab's like, whatever. You want to do it? Go ahead. And so uh, Ahimaaz takes off, and he's so determined to be number one that he runs past the Cushite. Cushite couldn't keep up, and he ends up being ahead of him. And as they reach the outskirts of David's camp in Mahanaim, there's a watchman there, of course, and they notice this runner coming, and they tell David, verse 24, David was sitting between the two gates of the city, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running by himself. The watchman called and told the king, and the king said, well, if he's by himself, there's good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, this one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is a good man and comes with good news. So, Given the slower pace of travel and, and information tra- you know, movement and so on, there was time when you saw a runner coming to sit around and speculate a little bit about, I wonder what the message is going to be. And when the watchman says you got David, this first man coming, David uh, says, oh, it must be good news. And of course, the reason is that if it had been a, a bad outcome in the battle, you wouldn't have one guy running. You'd have the whole army running. You'd have everybody coming back. It'd be a flight to get back because the other army would be pursuing them. So if you only have one guy running, it's, he says, probably a good sign. And then the second guy shows up, and David's response there is kind of optimistically, well, maybe more good news. And when he's told it's Ahimaaz, then David says, oh, I know he's a good man, so he must be bringing good news. Do you get a sense here David's working too hard to convince himself that there's reason to be optimistic. It's almost like he's secretly worried about what he's going to hear and he's talking himself up that it's okay. What's he worried about? Well, I'll tell you, it's not the battle. He's not worried about the outcome of the battle. He knows the outcome of the battle. It was a foregone conclusion. David gave strict orders about one thing, what to do with my son, and I suspect he's wondering what came of those orders. Meanwhile, The rest of the nation is not worried about Absalom. The rest of the nation is worried about their kingdom. The nation's future lies in the balance. And if you were somebody who aligned yourself with David, as everyone in this camp has, then if David's force is lost and Absalom won, you're dead. I mean, Absalom's not going to hesitate to take care of of business. So this is just one more tension between David's public role as king and his private role at father, as father. You see the tension now boiling over as he starts to worry more about one thing than the other, which is why the Lord brings Absalom to, to his end and why he lets the news reach David this way. Verse 28, Ahimaaz called and said to the king, all is well, and he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground, 
And he said, blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? But Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I, I, I do not know what it was. Then the king said, well, turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. So Ahimaaz reaches David first, that was what he wanted, of course, and he proudly announces the outcome of the battle. But he, he kind of buries the lead. You know, he goes, he goes to what happens in the battle, but he consciously avoids talking about the big news, which is Absalom's dead. And you notice how quickly David skips over that too. He doesn't even ask a question about the battle. He goes straight to the main concern. What happened to my son? Now David is far more interested in the outcome of his son. Uh, and as he presses for that, I guess Ahimaaz, uh, uh, as he's running, must have kind of put two and two together. He's not as dumb as he looked. He figured out that's not the news I want to deliver. And he realizes there's another guy coming. <laughs> so he says, I'll let him tell that part of the story. I gave the good news. So, uh, and it's interesting, he lies here. Because Joab told him specifically, you don't want to go there, his son is dead. So when he says he doesn't know, flat out lies. So this guy is not, you know, pure as the driven snow. He's willing to do what he needs to for his own sake also. So uh, Ahimaaz does what he needs to do for his sake, waits for the Cushite. The Cushite shows up, and verse 31 Behold, the Cushite arrived and said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son? So the poor Cushite, uh, he does what he does diplomatically. I mean, when he's forced to give the news, he, he kind of says it in, in the best possible way. But uh, predictably, you know, David's crushed by the news. He completely overlooks the, the news of the battle, of course, focuses only on his son, leaving the room, grieved, walks up to the top of the, the, the gate was in the wall, so you had a stairwell up from the gate to the top. He goes up to the top of the gate on the top of the wall. He's grieving in a very public way. It's visible from up there. And yeah, we can sympathize for David over the loss of his son. I mean, I'm not trying to be inhumane about this. That, that much makes sense. But he is more than a father. He's God's anointed. He's the king over a nation. And in this moment, he is showing that he is more concerned about the personal loss of one man than he was for the state of the entire nation. And it becomes clear now to us, and I'm sure to them at the time, what the good news was that David was hoping to hear from those messengers. He was only interested in hearing that his son was alive. That was the only news that would make him uh, whole. And by refusing to hold his sons accountable, he has enabled them to follow after their worst desires and instincts, and this is the damage that has been done as a result. You remember Amnon, the one who, had, uh, who raped his half-sister, he pursued perverted lust with no consequence. His brother Absalom pursues unbridled pride and ambition, no consequence. Dad brings him home, ignores him for a couple years, and then restores him with no consequence. After Absalom divides the nation, sends the king packing, causes 20,000 families to lose fathers, 
sons, brothers. David mourns his death as if to say the outcome has been a disaster for the nation. When in reality, it's the best possible resolution for the nation and ultimately for David too. You know, what would have happened if Absalom had lived? Well, what if he had come back into David's house? What if David had just done what he did the last time and said, oh, come on back in, son? Do you think he would have done, just become a nice boy and, and fallen in line and supported David's reign? I mean, he almost certainly would have looked for the next possible way to disrupt David's reign and maybe killed him in his sleep. Who knows? What if he had just been exiled? What if David had said, well, I won't kill him. I'll just send him away somewhere. There's no doubt he comes back with another army one day. You know, someone who's gone this far doesn't suddenly decide he's going to you know, retire and become a gardener or something. He's going to come back at him. There was little reason to expect that Absalom is going to stop trying to get what he wanted, and David's showing no inclination to try to stop him. Look, this is what discipline from God looks like and, and how it works in our hearts. It takes you to a place that you will not go on your own. That's the whole idea of discipline, right? It brings you to the end of yourself so that you have no choice but to contend with your pride or your deceptions or your rebellion or your whatever, whatever the issue is. And when you are forced by God's hand to be in that place, you get an honest look at yourself for a minute. You get to kind of see what you are, what you've done, how it's affected other people, and if you're listening, you won't like it. You won't like what you see. You'll realize that's not who I want to be. That's what discipline does, right? Discipline brings someone through a process of self-reflection, forced by circumstance, so that then they might make a different choice for themselves going forward. They might repent. And with God's help, with his discipline, we repent, we move in a new direction, and ultimately we land somewhere better. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that we never seem to remember. The process is designed to take you so that when you land where it's going, you'll be happier than you were in your rebellion. What you'll find there in the new place, you will be glad you're there, not where you started when you get there. It's just on this side of it, we can't imagine that God can bring us somewhere better than we found on our own the things we enjoy, the things we want to do, the person we want to be. This is David. Now, David's not a bad guy. Obviously, David's held out in Scripture as someone we should admire, and obviously so. But David's not perfect, and this whole section of 2 Samuel exists so that we understand that David wasn't perfect. He had issues. Here's how God deals with someone when God is on their side. And then, in David, to David's credit, he has moments in which he receives the discipline well. Not every time, not all the time, but he does at times. And now in this story, you're at the point where David gets to see himself in the mirror. He's been led all the way up to this point of a breaking moment. How does he see himself now? Well, that's just the very first part of chapter 19. That's where we'll do a little tonight before we end. Look at verse 1. Then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping, mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said... That day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So, so David goes up weeping, right? Everybody, everybody sees it. Someone comes down and tells Joab, says, You will not believe what David is doing right now. And, now, in that time, when a king had any response at all to anything, 
the expectation was that his subjects would echo that response. So if a king was happy and joyful, the nation was celebrating. When a king was agitated, everyone got nervous and anxious. When, when the king was mourning, everyone was to be mourning. So David's response to the messenger's news about the battle is to go upstairs and mourn, and in doing so, he leads to a whole series of unintended consequences, because while he was busy doing that, everybody else was doing what they thought he would have done. They've gone out and partied. They've just won the big battle. This is probably the biggest victory they've had on the battlefield in a long time. And no one anticipated that David would have a negative response to that outcome. I mean, yeah, they they knew he would mourn for his son privately. Of course he would. But that's not to be your primary response when you are the king of a nation that just won in battle. Uh, I mean, how would you expect your president or your commander of your your military forces to, to behave on V-Day, or V-E Day, or, or you know, the day that you win World War II, if it also happened to coincide with the day that he hears about his son dying in battle. You would expect mixed emotions from the guy, but you would certainly not have him stand up in front of national TV and mourn the fact that the nation won and just act like the world's falling apart. You'd look at him like, what, the, what, did I miss something? Did we lose? I thought we just won. That's the reaction. And so they've started celebrating this great military victory, and the news comes out, no, 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 guys, 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 hey, 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 king's mourning. We can't be doing this right now. King is mourning. We've got to start mourning. Everybody's like, what? We're in the middle of partying and song. Now we're supposed to be engaged in mourning. So notice in verse 3, it's like the record's playing. Turn the lights off. Put the glasses down. Everybody back at home. And everybody slinks away from the celebration. It says they come back like they've been defeated in battle. They're, they're acting humiliated when they shouldn't be. Why are they feeling this way? Because David is mourning the man who tried to kill them all. Remember, Absalom has himself expected he would die if he lost the battle. You can darn be sure he was going to put everybody else to death if he had won. And no, everybody knows this. That's what's so weird about this in a way is David is acting so strangely compared to what everyone else would have been thinking. And he's brought this on himself. It is this unreasonable devotion to his family at the expense of his role as a leader that is now putting his own leadership at risk. That is, the people he rules are looking at him like he's not fit. And notice it ends there in verse four with the king still in his room, calling out Absalom's name. It's a full-fledged pity party. It's like a, a 16-year-old in her bedroom or his bedroom, you know, have, mourning over the loss of, of his latest you know, girlfriend or, girl, or, or boyfriend. He's like, okay, I know you're sad. Get over it. Let's move on. You know, you can't do this all day. And it's, but it's at a huge level now. We're talking about a national leader doing this. And after seeing the people of Israel humiliated by their own king after a great military victory, Joab... And, and this is where you have to admire the man a little bit. Joab had enough. He, had, he, was, he was at his breaking point. He gathers his courage, goes up to David, and he gives David a piece of his mind. Verse five. Joab came into the house to the king and said, today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you 
And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now, Joab was not a guy that was afraid to say something, was he? He tells David like it is, and I will say, generally, men in power need men who have the courage to say something like this when it's necessary. David, he says, has covered the faces of his own people with shame, the very ones who saved his life. And, and Joab makes this fabulous argument. He says, you know, if you had lost, not only would you have died, but everyone else who's out there would have died with you. And by the way, your whole family would have died. Your other son, Solomon, would have died. All your wives would have died. Your concubine, you know. His point is this. Absalom's actions meant that someone in your family was going to die. It was either one son or everyone else. And you're mourning that it was this instead of that? So in light of the alternatives, Absalom's death was by far the best outcome possible given the circumstances. See, David wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He somehow had held on to this thought that his son could do what his son had, did, had done here and no one had to die, at least in his family. And that was never a possibility. And in light of God's grace to allow it to turn out the way it did, Ab, uh, Joab's argument is you should temper your mourning just a little bit, don't you think? Uh, he describes David's actions you're loving those who hate you and hating those who love you. You probably know somebody who's done that from time to time, right? We tend to hate, we're always the meanest, the worst to the people we love the most, aren't we? It's just the way we, we live. Then we've all heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water, which means, if you don't know, it means the bonds of family are stronger than any other bond you will ever form. And so the, the thinking goes, you may have close friends. In fact, you may have friends you like better than your family, but in the end, blood always wins out. If this push comes to shove, family comes first. It's that mindset. There's some truth to it, but David seems to live by that standard to a fault. He has favored a rebellious son who wouldn't have hesitated to kill him if he'd had the chance, and in the process, he forsakes the lives or, or the admiration of those who put their own life on the line to save him and his family and the nation. And Joab says, you have shown those princes and servants today that, that they don't mean anything to you. In fact, you would rather trade them all if you could have Absalom back. This is the moment. Now, now we get it, right? And we can all sit here in a little self-righteousness and judge David from a distance, okay. But, but this is the moment when God shows that mirror to David. Here's who you are. You like it? This is who you really wanted to be? This, this, this is what you wanted? But if you've ever been on the other side of that mirror where someone spoke to you, you know, God used somebody, used a person, used a situation, used your boss, used your relative, used your spouse. Something happened in your life and you had, to, you had to sit down and take a bad news story that you deserved. You know, even if it's a small moment, like the ticket at the side of the road when the cop says, have a nice day. You know, it's those moments of rebuke where you have to sort of face the fact of what you did and you have to decide, okay, am I gonna accept this or am I gonna fight against it and pretend it didn't happen and tell them they're wrong or whatever? Um, this is the moment David got a chance to see himself as, as who he truly was, through Joab and through those experiences. He is an indulgent, absentee father, or at the very least, detached and unwilling to hold his sons accountable. He tried to avoid bringing the penalty of the law upon his sons so he could spare them, potentially sparing them from the punishment of death you know, for what they had done. And ironically, that weakness just led to even more bloodshed, their death and others. Ironically, it's later in David's life, or after David's life, that his son, Solomon, gives the wisest advice concerning parenting found in all the Bible, which is a direct 
uh, contradiction to what David himself did. It's advice that David needed. Uh, Proverbs 19.18, and maybe some parents in here might find this helpful as well. Discipline your son while there is hope, and do not desire his death. A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. So a failure to deal with a child's rebellious nature while they are young will only lead to greater rebellion when they are older. Kids do not grow out of rebellion. They just get better at it. And if you rescue them from their rebellion rather than dealing with it straight up, you get to do it again, the Bible says. Solomon wrote. And that's, what, that's where David is right now. That's how he got to this point. The Lord is willing uh, and, and lovingly showing David why he is where he is right now, why it all came to pass. And this is what, it, what I said earlier. This is seeing yourself in a mirror. It's a chance for, your, for, yourself to, for you to say to yourself, is this who I want to be? Seeing yourself honestly through a set of circumstances that God uh, didn't necessarily create. Our sin may have created it, but he, he turns it so that it can become something we learn from. It's the way he disciplines us. It's the way it works when you discipline your own children, if you think about it. I mean, I don't know how you do, but typically don't we take our child back through the circumstances and explain how we got here and look what you did and look how it turned out and now is this what you really wanted? You know, if you have that moment with a kid and they're listening, you expect them to look at it with you and say, hmm, not so much what I wanted, no. And then you have the moment to say, all right, let's talk about the future. You know, you can learn that lesson when God shows it to you, or you can repeat it. I mean, doesn't it make sense if he says to us, if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again, talking to us about how we raise our kids, don't you think that same truth would apply then when he deals with us, right? So the question becomes here, what is David going to do? Is he going to get stuck in a cycle of discipline? Or is he going to hear what God gives him to hear? You know, this reminds me of another proverb from Solomon, Proverbs 3.11 My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. So Joab ended that passage with this bold demand. He told David, you need to get out there and tell those people that fought for you uh, that you appreciated what they do and you need to make this right. And we wait till after Christmas to come back and look at David's response and what comes next in the story. Let's pray. Father, I do pray on behalf of all those here with me, all who have heard the lesson, those who are perhaps parents with children who need correction and the struggle is real as we try to help our children and maybe those of us, Father, who are on the other end of that, dealing with discipline from you for good reason and knowing you have good intentions always, but still, Father, it's difficult. And we want to move through that circumstance, coming out where you want us to be. I pray, Father, you would give us a humility, submission, a broken heart where we need to have it so that we can hear you as we should and walk with you where you want us to go. And Father, show us that we can trust you, that where you're taking us is somewhere better than we've been. And Father, I thank you for uh, the reminder tonight in your word. And let us go forth this next couple of weeks, Father, in the joy of the season, remembering why it is that we're so thankful that Jesus uh, is in our life, that he came and he took our place. Father, thank you for that 
Let us share it with as many as we can. Help us to find those words when we need them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.